My friend John Norman told me about a judge in Oklahoma City who came up behind a car with a bumper sticker that said, Question Authority. The judge pulled up by the side of the car at the stoplight, rolled down his window, motioned for the man in the other car to roll down his window. He did. The judge said, What is it that you want to know? He said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I saw your bumper sticker. It said, question authority. He said, I'm a judge, a person of authority. I was just wondering what it is that you want to know. Well, if there's anyone who questions authority, it's our children. When my children were young, I used to come home to a woman who was totally worn out. I remember on numerous occasions, Linda said, if I hear why mama one more time, I'm going to scream. John Roseman said that when a child asks the question, why, that is not a question, that is an invitation to a fight. But they are constantly asking, why? why? Why do I have to pick up my room? Why do I have to make my bed? Why do I have to do the dishes? Why do I have to do my homework? Why can't I go? Everyone else is going. When I was around and those things were said, I normally would say, because I pay the bills. Now, your responsibility as a member of this family is to carry out the trash. My responsibility is to pay the bills. If you want to pay the bills, then I'll carry out the trash. <laughs> Children question our authority. Well, today we continue our series from the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapters 5 and 6, Jesus is telling us what is expected as a member of his family. Now, if you are a member of the Christian family, Jesus tells us exactly what he expects from us. In chapter number 7, he begins to explain that. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse number 1. Do not judge lest you be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now, Jesus begins here in verse number 1 when he says, Do not judge lest you be judged. It's my understanding that today that is the most popular verse in the Bible. It used to be John 3.16. But today, this is the most popular verse in the Bible. Vine says the word judge means to separate, to select, 
to choose, hence to determine, and so to judge. Now, I believe that there is tremendous misunderstanding concerning this verse of Scripture as we look at it within context. When Jesus said that we are not to judge, He is not saying that we are not to have an opinion as to what is right and wrong. He is not saying that there are no absolutes concerning right and wrong. For instance, look at verse number 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, wait a minute. He says to me, beware of false prophets. How am I supposed to know that? If, if I do not judge, if I don't make a distinction between right and wrong, then how is it I'm supposed to know who is a false prophet? Well, look at verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. So he says then, I know a false prophet by the actions of their lives. I know them by their fruits. So when we look at this passage of Scripture, understand that he is not saying that we are not to have any opinion towards right and wrong, that there is no such thing as an absolute right or wrong. What then is he speaking of? I believe within the context in which this is given that he is speaking of one who has a judgmental attitude or a critical spirit. And he begins to describe that. He says, first of all, this is a self-righteous spirit. Look at verse number 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he is talking about someone who has this self-righteous attitude. Some years ago, there was a popular book in psychological circles entitled, I'm Okay, You're Okay. This is the person who has the attitude, I'm okay, you're not. And that was the attitude of the Pharisees. They were able to see everyone else's failings, everyone else's sins, while they overlooked their own. You remember the story in the New Testament Jesus told about the publican and the Pharisee who went to the temple to pray. And while they were there, the Bible says that the publican would not even as much as lift his eyes to the Lord. He was humble before God. And the Pharisee stood over there and he's praying and he said, God, you know, I'm a pretty good catch for you. I go to church every Sunday. I teach a Sunday school class. They're thinking about ordaining me as a deacon. I've been an usher for a while. I've even taken my turn in the nursery. Lord, I've done all those things. And then he looked over and saw the public and said, You know, God, I'm thankful I'm not like that guy over there. In other words, I'm okay. He's not. That is the attitude of this person. You also see it concerning the Pharisees when they caught the woman in the act of adultery. And as they brought her and threw her at the feet of Jesus, one of them said, We ought to stone her. I'm okay. She's not. And Jesus said, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Folks, we have a tendency sometimes to see the sins of everyone else while we ignore our own. So that's what Jesus is speaking of. 
He is speaking of a person who has a self-righteous spirit. I'm okay, but you're not. This is a hypercritical spirit. Hillel, a famous rabbi, said, Do not judge a man until you yourself have come into his circumstances or situation. You see, this person oftentimes criticizes and judges based on a lack of information or misinformation. And there's a lot of it today. I know that you get the same stuff I do in, on the Internet. Some of it is so ridiculous that it's funny. Some years ago, the senator from Hawaii was taking his oath of office. When he took his oath, he raised his left hand to take it. He received immediate and great criticism for raising his left hand. Of course, he had lost his right arm in service to his country. But sometimes we are critical when we are misinformed or uninformed. This person is someone who always expects the worst of others. I like the story about a man who got up one morning. He went over and opened the drapes in his bedroom looked out, stood there for a little bit, said to his wife, Well, who is that beautiful woman with our neighbor? She immediately ran over and looked. When she looked, she was disappointed. She said, Well, that's his wife. He said, Well, certainly it is. Who would you expect it to be? Well, the truth is sometimes we are looking for that other person. This person is someone who magnifies the worst. They overlook a hundred good things about you and focus in on the bad thing. Normally, they do not have any mercy. They are a merciless, spirited person because they never consider the other person's circumstances or motives. The interesting thing about criticism, folks, is that normally it reveals more about the critic than the one who is criticized. Frank Clark wrote, Lots of faults we think we see in others are simply the ones we expect to find there because we have them. Now, Jesus gives us a warning here. In verse number 2, He says, For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure... It will be measured to you. So Jesus then reminds us that my standard of judgment is the standard by which I'm going to be judged. He says that my judgment of others determines the way I am judged. Paul said the same thing. In Romans chapter 2, verse number 1, Paul wrote, Therefore you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. Do you see what he is saying? The standard by which I judge you is the standard by which I will be judged. That my way of judging is the way I am going to be judged. I've also noticed something else about the critical person is that oftentimes, at least it seems to me, that the criticism is designed to conceal the problems within the critic, the failings within the critic. 
I've noticed for many years that those who criticize people and churches that are evangelistic normally are not evangelistic. And so because they are not evangelistic, then they criticize those who take seriously the Great Commission that we are to share the gospel with other people. Dwight L. Moody was a great evangelist of years ago, and he used to preach, and he would give an invitation. Well, at the end of one of his crusade services, there was a young man who came up to him, and he said, I don't like your method. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, at the end of the service, you give an invitation, and I don't like that method of asking people to come to Christ. And Moody said, well, I don't particularly like it either. He said, what method do you use? And the young man said, well, I don't have a method. And Moody said, well, I like mine better than yours. I have also noticed as a pastor of a church for a long time, those who are most critical concerning the expenditures of the church are usually those who don't give. I have seldom ever found anyone who is generous in their giving, they're committed to their church, being critical of the expenditures of the church. But I have often seen those people who give little or nothing very critical of the way the church spends the money. So Jesus begins here by warning us about criticism, about having a judgmental spirit, a judgmental attitude. And that's what he's speaking of here. Now then, having said that, there is the necessity of discernment. Okay? He says, judge not lest you be judged, but there is the necessity of discernment. Look at verse number 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Well, the, the terms that are used here, holy and pearls, generally are, are thought to be references to the gospel, the good news. So that is generally thought to be a reference to the gospel. Holy, pearls, and then dogs and swine, they were considered unclean by the Jew. And so these are considered to be terms representing those who have no appreciation for holy things. They have no appreciation for the gospel. So he says that whenever you are sharing the gospel, don't toss it before swine. Don't give it to dogs. Now, here's the question. Is Jesus saying that we are not then to share the gospel with every person, that there are some people who are dogs and swines, and we are not supposed to share the gospel with all people. Is that what he's saying? Well, absolutely not. Because Jesus shared the gospel, the good news, with all kinds of people. In fact, he shared the gospel with people you and I probably would uh, preclude from witnessing to. You know, that person never could be saved, or that person so much in sin, they never could be saved. But Jesus shared the gospel with all types of people. Here is the discernment, then. Here is the thing that he is saying, I believe. Though we share the gospel with all people, we are to be discerning in how we share the gospel, the method that we use. Now, I think of witnessing sort of like playing golf. If you play golf, you know that you use different clubs for different shots. I don't know that it really makes any difference with my game. I could probably tee off with a putter and it wouldn't make a lot of difference. But the idea is that you should use, you know, like a driver whenever you're teeing off and then you've got a wedge when you get close and a putter when you're on the green and those kinds of things. I see sharing the gospel the same way. One size does not fit all. One method does not fit everyone. In fact, I look at Jesus and the different ways that he shared the gospel. 
For instance, when Nicodemus came to him at night, you recall that Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. He was a religious man, a religious teacher. And Jesus talked to him about being born again. And, and you know that Nicodemus said, well, how can a man be born again? And Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Do you see what he did? Jesus appealed to him where he was. He said, Nicodemus, you are a teacher of Scripture. You know Scripture. And he appealed to him at that point. He said, are you a teacher of the Scripture and you don't understand these things? But he, he met him where he was, and that's the way he shared the gospel. When the woman came to Jacob's well to draw water, Jesus spoke to her about the gospel as being living water that would quench her thirst. But he dealt with her where she was. She had come for water. He said, let me tell you about living water. Water that will forever quench your thirst. And then when he stood before Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responded to the question. I mean, he didn't talk to him about living water. He responded to the question that he asked. When Jesus spoke to farmers, he talked to them about sowing seeds. And he, he said the gospel is like sowing seeds that will produce a crop. When he spoke to fishermen, he talked about the gospel as like catching fish and so forth. But the point that I'm making to you is this. Jesus never buried the gospel because it is eternally true. But his method of presentation was determined by the person to whom he was witnessing. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. When Paul was in Athens, you recall there on Mars Hill that... Uh, he was speaking to the, to the intellects of the day, to the intellectuals of the day. And so Paul appealed to them where they were. In fact, he said, you know, I was coming through your town, and I saw all of these idols that were erected, and, and uh, I saw these altars to the various gods that you worship. He said, I noticed something. There was one over there that said, to the unknown God. He said, I want to tell you about that one you don't know. And he told them about Jesus. He quoted their poets. But when he was there on Mars Hill, he related to them where they were. They were the intellectuals, and he related to them. And then later, he went to Corinth. And there he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, there is a change there in the presentation. When he was at Mars Hill, he was talking to the intellectuals. He appealed to their poets. He appealed to where they were. When he went to Corinth, he said, I'm, I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, that has caused some people to say, well, when Paul was on Mars Hill, he compromised. When he was on Mars Hill, he compromised with the intellectuals in presenting the gospel. He had learned his lesson when he went to Corinth, and there he said, I'm determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I totally disagree with that. Now, you might believe that. I don't. I think that he had two different audiences. I don't think that he compromised the gospel at all. I think he was recognizing the audience to whom he was speaking, and he was responding to them, but he shared the same gospel. He just did it with different methods. Folks, we are to be discerning as we share the gospel. Now, understand this as a believer, as a member of the family of God. You and I are to share the good news. We're weak in that area. 
That is something every one of us... Now, there are those who have the gift of evangelism. We all have the responsibility of evangelism. I don't have the gift of evangelism, but I have the responsibility. So we all are to share the gospel, but we are to be discerning as to how we do it. Missionaries have to learn that. When they go to another culture, they have to be sensitive to the culture in which they are ministering. We have to do the same thing. Everyone doesn't respond the same way. When it comes to worship services, there are those people who like uh, liturgical services. There are those who like traditional services. There are those who like contemporary services. Now, to be honest with you, I really don't care. Now, I prefer this one. Steve told me, he said, this is the best. And I said, okay. (laughs) So I prefer this one, but I can worship in any of them, as long as the gospel is not compromised. I, I, I don't think that it's really that important as to whether or not they are liturgical, traditional, or contemporary, as long as we are true to the Word of God. And that's what really is important. If we, are, if we are not faithful to the Word of God, then, folks, the form of our worship cannot overcome that. But we have to understand not everybody fits the same thing. Not, there are some people who, who would come to the Christmas pageant and they'd never come hear me preach. I don't understand that either. I, I know it's a surprise to you as it is to me. But there are some people who will come to the Christmas pageant, but they're not going to come and hear me preach. There are some people who are reached through our athletic program, our sports ministry, and Cindy and Mark do a great job with that. There are some people who are reached through our television broadcast. You know, last Sunday I was talking to um, Sylvia this morning. Last Sunday we had four people say through our television broadcast. So there are some people who respond to that. And now then we have the Internet that we are expanding, you know, and our, our website and all of those things that we are doing, we're expanding, we're expanding those things. And so our service is uh, streamed around the world as we are sharing here. There's so many opportunities for us. The thing that I want to say to you, though, is this. There are many ways that we can share the gospel, and we are to use all of those ways to share the gospel without ever compromising the gospel. And that's what Jesus is saying. We are not to be judgmental. We're not to be critical. We're not to have that kind of spirit. But we are to be discerning as we share the gospel with other people because one size does not fit all. And then he says that we are to pray in verse number 8. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. So we are expected not to be a critical person. We are to be discerning. And we are to pray. All right. Well, what are the qualifications then for answered prayer? Calvin Miller wrote, The table of communion with the inner God is not a fast food franchise. Folks, prayer is not like going to McDonald's and ordering something. Prayer is a child of God communing with his Father. We're talking to our Father. When we pray, it is communication with our heavenly Father. So how then are we to pray? Well, the Bible says that we are to ask rightly. In James chapter 4, verse number 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, 
Prayer is not selfish, but that does not mean we do not make our request. It does not mean that you don't request your desires. It just means that your desires are to be in keeping with His purposes. So, He is not saying that you are not to bring your desires, your concerns to Him. It's just not to be selfish. The Bible says that as we pray, we are to ask in faith. In James chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Well, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? When my children would ask me for something, and they say, Well, I'd like to have this, but you're probably not going to get it for me. I say, Yeah, you're right. But whenever they really believed, they really had a need, a sincere, genuine need, and they really believed, I was far more responsive, and so is God. The Bible says we're to ask in faith. Now, here's another. The Bible says that we're to ask in God's will. The Scripture says in 1 John 5:14, If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. There are a lot of people who think that if I make a request, then God is obligated to give it. If I ask God for something because He has promised to answer prayer, then God is obligated. Well, He says that if we ask in God's will. I literally had a guy come to me one time who was living with a woman, and he asked me if I would pray to bless their relationship. On numerous occasions, I've had people to ask me to pray about their finances when they didn't trust God with the tithe. Now, folks, why would we think that God is going to answer our prayers when we are living our lives contrary to His Word? So he says, ask in his will. And then unconfessed sin will keep our prayers from being answered. Isaiah said, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Something else that hinders our prayers is that our relationship's not being right. Look over at chapter 6, verse 14. If you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. In other words, if my prayers are going to be effective, I've got to be right with you. How am I going to have a good vertical relationship when my horizontal relationship is not good? See, I have to be right with you. You know what else is scary? Men... You know what else is scary? If you're not getting along with your wife, it affects your prayers. Do you know that? 1 Peter 3, 7, You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way, as as with a weaker vessel since she's a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Judeacons know that. You better get along with your wives if you want your prayers answered. I know that's a challenge. (laughs) When we meet the qualifications, though, we can expect our prayers to be answered. Look what he says in verse 7. Ask, and it shall be given you. If I ask, it means that I'm aware of, of my need. If I ask him, it means I'm aware of his ability to meet my need. And then he goes on from there. Seek and you shall find. Now that speaks of intensity. As I am praying, I ask first. Now then I become more intense in it. And then he says, knock and it shall be open. 
when the door is not open, that doesn't mean that we stop. Because oftentimes it is persistence that opens the door. You remember in the Scripture when Peter went to Mary's house and knocked on the door, Rhoda came down and, and answered. She saw Peter. She was surprised that it was Peter, so she ran back up to tell him that Peter was down there knocking on the door. And the Bible says, but Peter continued knocking. I love that verse. He continued knocking. When your prayer is not answered does not mean that you are supposed to stop praying until God tells you to stop praying. Because persistence oftentimes opens the door. So let me, let me conclude. What does it mean to be a, fam- a member of the family of God? He said, don't be critical. Don't have a judgmental spirit. Be discerning. Understand that everyone does not respond to the gospel the same way. Pray without ceasing because whatever we do requires prayer. That in this passage of Scripture, I believe, is what God is saying to us as being members of His family. Are you a member? Do you know the Lord? Our gracious Father, we come to a time of invitation, and I pray for the the Holy Spirit to speak to hearts. I pray especially for those who have never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that today they would. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing. We extend an invitation. If you're here without Christ, I encourage you to trust Him today. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. You come. The staff will be here to receive you. Stand with me, please, as they sing, You Come. I'll greet you as you do.